a school administrator in Tillmanuk, Oregon, County, Oregon, after the state had passed these rigorous standards for uh, reading, writing, analyzing, took all the excuse notes that the parents had written excusing their kids from school, recognizing the inconsistencies between the student standards and the parent standards. So these are actual school notes that were written this principal at a public school in Oregon. Dear school, please accuse John for being absent on January 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and 33rd. <laughs> Dear school, Please excuse Chris. He has an acre in his side. Dear school, please excuse Mary. She could not come to school because she's bothered by very close veins. (laughs) All right. Please excuse John, who's been absent because he's had two teeth taken off his face. (laughs) Please excuse Billy home. Because he had to go Christmas shopping because I didn't know what size she wears. Please excuse Gloria. She's been sick and under the doctor. (laughs) Please excuse my son who's under doctor's care and can't take P.E. Please execute him. (laughs) Dear school, please excuse Lily who was absent from school yesterday as she was groaning over. Please excuse Ray for Friday. He has loose vowels. <laughs> Please excuse Joyce from PE for the next few days. Yesterday she fell out of a tree and misplaced her hip. <laughs> Please excuse Blanche from Jim, J I M, today. She's administrating. Carlos was absent yesterday because he was playing football, he was hurting his growing part. <laughs> Oh, my daughter was absent yesterday because she was tired. She spent the weekend with the Marines. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Please excuse Diane for being absent yesterday. She was in bed with Gramps. And last, this is the best, all right? Please excuse Jimmy for being. It was his father's fault. Lord have mercy. Oh. My dad used to say excuses are all the same. They all stink. Right? Um, friends, I share those with you because we just heard some heavy texts, right? And, and I think it's important that as we're walking through this section of Romans, Romans 1 and 2 is really is, how do you know you're a Christian? That's what it's all about. And so... We're going to work through some demanding thinking today with some holy sweat. And I think, uh, like a good workout, it's going to be worth it. But uh, it might be tough to hear for some, but we need to recommend and, and, and also recognize that God is the God of grace and love. Because you can't divorce this text from what we heard last week. Last week in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that we are clothed in his righteousness in Christ. No matter where we are on our journey, if we have truly trusted Jesus Christ, we are clothed in that righteousness. For the just shall live by faith, right? Keep that in mind. 
Because the idea that we're walking into God's wrath and judgment are offensive to modern sensibilities. And many cringe at the text that was read by Lisa. Good job, Lisa. It's, it's not easy to read that today. Um, and the only medicine that I have to offer is not my own. It's the Holy Spirit given through the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome and therefore to us. For our culture isn't that far from it, quite frankly. And so I encourage you to open up with me. I hope you're turning your Bibles to Romans 1. If, if you're visiting with us today, you'll notice the text is in the back of your bulletin listed for you. Because Paul starts verse 18 with the first negative thought of the letter. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, it's vital to understand what this means or the rest of the passage will be totally missed. First, it does not mean that God is given to random, uncontrolled anger. There are two words in the Greek that are used to express anger. The first is thumos. We get our words thermometer or thermos from these words. It's a red-hot anger, the kind that overcomes an individual and they lose control and go into a rage. Road rage on the interstate. The kind of rage where you punch your neighbor in the nose. It's impulsive, passionate, and that's not the word that Paul is using here. The other word that's used, that Paul is using, is orge, which signifies a settled and abiding condition. It's a controlled, personal hostility. The wrath of God is not a human wrath, which is at best a distorted selection of, God's, selection of God's wrath because it's always compromised by the presence of our sin. See, the wrath of God is perfect, settled, controlled, personal hostility towards all that is wrong with the world. So that's the first point you've got to keep in mind. Secondly, that the wrath of God is parallel to last week's verses. Okay? You have one coin two different sides. You have God's righteousness on one side and God's wrath on the other. It's the counterpart to the righteousness of God. And third, God's wrath is not directed against goodness. It's directed against all the godlessness and wickedness of mankind. This is not a deity who flies off the handle and indiscriminately punishes those who have gotten out of hand. God's wrath is perfect in its quality and perfect in its object. We have to keep these three points in mind as we travel for our passages. And Paul gets very specific as to why the ungodly are unrighteous and why they're under God's wrath. And in so doing, he gives an understanding for the unbeliever of what a true Christian is and what a true Christian life should look like and what unbelief looks like and assists the disciple the Christian, to what it means to be better equipped to live in an unbelieving world. And this is a vital concern, especially for our young people, who are walking into a world that, that we're leaving them with incre increasing Roman-type qualities. So Paul writes to these Romans so that he makes sure that they understand what a Christian is, and today he's focusing on the Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. Because this is what Roman culture is like. Next week, he focuses on the Jews. So we had read the prodigal son today. 
the irreligious. That's exactly what Paul's writing about here to the Roman Gentiles. And what we see is the distinctives of unbelief and what unbelieving lives displayed look like. All right, so that's the two points. Distinctives of unbelief and the distinctives of unbelief that's displayed. And the two points of unbelief, the distinctives of them are the suppression of truth and the twisting of truth. And the distinctives of unbelief displayed is sensual depravity, mental depravity, and depravity approved of. Okay? So that's where we're going today. Two big points with a, some subheadings underneath them. All right? Distinctives of unbelief, which is the suppression of truth and the twisting of truth. And next, unbelief displayed by sensual depravity, mental depravity, and depravity being approved of. Let's look at this. What are the distinctives of unbelief? Well, first you have the suppression of truth. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, the suppression of truth is not a passive act, ladies and gentlemen. It's holding something down, like a wrestling move, like a double arm bar. You've got it held down, and you're keeping it down, attempting not to let it up. It's like when you were a kid, and you had a puppy, and you wanted it up in your room for the night, which wasn't allowed in your home, and then all of a sudden, your parents yell upstairs and say, what's all that racket? So you take the puppy, and you put it in your toy box, and you sat in the toy box as mom walked through the door. <laughs> the puppy's going, now, my puppy was a beagle. And if you had any type of hound dog, you know they're not quiet animals. So this puppy's going, woo, woo, woo. And my mom goes, what is going on? Nothing. <laughs> That's suppressing. Suppressing the truth is a continual, aggressive striving against the revealed truth of God. Paul opens our eyes to the fact that all without Christ are in a constant process of holding down the truth and there's no excuses. There's no exceptions. And this is true of the darkest part of the Amazon jungle, but it's also due to the concrete jungle downtown. And why do unbelievers suppress it? Well, he continues in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because what God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. See, what humanity holds down is the basic knowledge of the majestic, transcending power of God as creator and sustainer. I cannot agree with those who think this verse teaches a full-blown natural theology wherein all the attributes of God are easily discernible to the observer of nature so that by watching the universe, they can come to the explicit conclusion of God's existence and the need for the sacrifice of Christ. I don't buy that. The text says that God's invisible qualities are his eternal power and divine nature, and that's what nature reveals. And along with this, humans see by implication their own finiteness and the great gulf that's between us and God. Go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and you'll see that. The incredible Rocky Mountains. Go stand at Skyline Drive in Virginia during the fall season and see the beauty and the majesty of God. 
on a beautiful summer day at Veterans Park here in Avon Lake. Look out, you won't see Canada. You'll see this massive lake that looks like an ocean. And it's beautiful as the sun sets over it. Or for you Poldark fans, the beautiful beaches of Cornwall, England. It's amazing. The rugged beauty of Cornwall. Creation reveals the existence of a God who presides in majestic and transcendent sustaining power. And it also reveals the infinite distance between us and our Creator. For verse 19 states, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. See, the word plain means manifest. This is not a covert revelation. It's not as if God is saying, Gotcha, I'm here. Uh uh-uh. uh. You don't have to be an intellectual. All can understand as much as they need to know. So Paul concludes, they're without excuse. The modern intelligentsia are without excuse. The blue-collar worker, without excuse. The truth is, it takes a concerted act of the will to deny a vastly powerful God has made and sustains creation. If one is not at least searching after God, he or she is suppressing the truth. You see, you'll never be able to stand before God and say, I never knew. Impossible. That's not an excuse, according to the word of God. And next, what happens is you have a twisting of the truth. Verse 21 and 23, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animal and creeping things. In other words, idolatry. John Calvin said, all our hearts are idol factories in our, in our natural state. And what Paul is saying is that there was, a, there was a time when idolaters saw God as majestic, transcendent, all-powerful, infinitely greater than themselves. However, humanity, though they understood this, they didn't honor him, but instead worshiped images like themselves. They refused to worship God for who he is, and therefore rather reduced him to their own level through idolatry created things, thus minimizing the chasm between the created and the creator. And the results, as you see for the rest of this passage, is a downward spiral, right? That's what Paul is doing. Second half, verse 21, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is significant because the darkened heart is a comprehensive term for all of humanity's faculties. Not only was their moral judgment darkened, but their intellect and reasoning power suffered as well. The magnificent idea of God as revealed in nature was lost to them. And the tragedy of idolatry is that it falls infinitely short of giving its people any idea of what God is truly like. Thus, you have verse 22, claiming to become wise, they became fools. I don't know if you recognize it, but the root word in the Greek for fool is the English word we derive from moron. It's an ugly term. 
which refers not so much to one's intellectual capacity as to his moral condition. And it spirals down. First they worship the image of man, then the birds, then the animals, then the creeping things. In other words, Paul's saying you can't get any lower than this. So we see first that man suppresses the truth about the greatness of God. And then we naturally twist it into idolatry and gotten rid of the true knowledge of God and thus worships images to which we're comfortable with. And the ungodly man or woman worships themselves. And we must, friends, keep before us first the God who is. The eternal power and divine nature of God as revealed to us in creation. Striving to remember his majesty, his transcendence, his otherness. Or we too have a tendency to fall into idolatry. We're susceptible to it. In the way we address the Lord in our prayer lives. In overly casual terms. Or sing songs that so sentimentalize Jesus that he's truly empty of his divinity. We need to be careful that we address God with a more humble attitude, for we're all vulnerable at times. And so we must address God with nothing much but who he truly is. The majestic, holy, transcendent God who loves us with an everlasting love. With a humble attitude. So that's the first point. That's how it comes to us. Well, what does an unbelieving life look like? Well, it looks like a life of bondage, according to the word. Verse 24 and 27, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women who exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women who consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is talking, yes, about homosexuality, but the reality is it's just the most obvious for him. He is not going to stop here, so don't go after your gay friends with this. Don't clobber them, okay? Just don't do it. It's important. But Paul is saying this is outside of God's will. It's all illicit sex outside of marriage is outside of God's will. It's Mickey Gillies' 1978 hit, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places, Cubed. All right? And it's not the orientation. It's the act, okay? It's important for us. For there are other sins we're going to see in a second <laughs> before God, which are just as bad as we will see. I think C.S. Lewis had it right when he said, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in wrong, of bossing them, patronizing them, and spoiling sport, and backbiting. The pleasure of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. The animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. 
But of course, it's better to be neither. See, Paul uses homosexual behavior as the extent to which sin takes to mankind, but he doesn't stop there. Okay? Notice what he says. This is played out in that behavior and anything outside of the biblical standard of marriage, but also into a mental depravity, verse 28 and 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. That about covers it all, doesn't it? Right? These are the dimensions of the depraved mind. And not all those who are without Christ have done all these things. But these kind of things come most natural to them. The tendency is to go deeper and deeper into decline. Therefore, you will never be able to stand in front of God and say, I didn't know. You also will not be able to stand in, God, in front of God and say, I was made this way. Because, sweetheart, we were all made that way. It's called sin. And so, therefore, it leads to such approval of depravity. No, look what Paul says in verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. To delight in those who do evil is a sure way to become even more degraded than the sinners one's observe. Uh, I think of who's worse in the first century? The gladiators or the people who watch them? Applauding one of them being killed. I mean, you're approving that which is evil. Well, well don't, be so, don't be so hard on the, on the spectators in the Colosseum, friends. You know, we're in a culture that is truly entertaining itself to death and much which is on cable TV. Watching and applauding all these aforementioned acts. Right? We see it all the time. Illicit sex outside of marriage, violence, deceit, etc. It makes little difference in our lives if the vices are real or portrayed. The effect is the same. An increasingly depraved mind on the part of the viewer. So what's the answer to the distinctives of unbelief and unbelief lived out in our culture? Why does God give a civilization over to this kind of thing? Because when the darkness prevails and despair and violence are widespread, men and women are most likely and ready to come to the light and give themselves to his grace. At Christmas time, we read that great text from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Paul described all this as going into increasing darkness. But the darkness is not outshone by the light of Christ. First century humanity was sunk in the darkness of despair, was it not? Idolatry had penetrated the world. Men had turned from the one true God who they could have never known. And in that hour, 
In the darkness of night, over the skies of Bethlehem, the angels broke through, and a great hope shone forth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's from that light, all light streams. The angel's message was the coming of the Lord Jesus, the availability of the gift of the righteousness of God that is by faith, from faith, for faith, that the just shall live by faith. Verse 17 of Romans 1. So what do we do? Well, maybe you're one of those irreligious Roman-like ones who just happened to stumble in here this morning. Like the prodigal son, I want to encourage you to, to come to yourself just like he did. Run back to the Father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm not worthy to become your son. Because you know what the Father's going to do? He's going to recognize you from afar off and run to you. Embrace you in his arms. Clothe you with the righteousness of a garment. Put a ring on your finger or shoes on your feet. Say, my son, my daughter's come home. Let's throw a party. That's the God who is. And for the rest of us, we need to remember, if we have placed our trust in Christ, please remember that the purity that we have is not from the Lord. I mean, it's not from us. It's from the Lord. It's not ourselves. Because those who have failed this week, in the welcome I always say, those who have struggled in their walk with Jesus this week and long for strength, you need to remember that there's no sin that's made God's love on the cross a casualty. He delights to welcome you back, to be restored again. Because as we walk forward from this place, it's the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the same power that we have to live the Christian life this week. God has made us male and female to live with all kinds of, you know, orientations that we have that can be redeemed. So let us watch and pray. And let us recognize that life is a little messy, right? As you come to faith in Jesus, it probably was a process, right? Most of us, it took some time. So let's be a welcoming place that welcomes everyone. Liars, haters, evildoers, gays, straights. Everybody is welcome. Because in my own desires and devices, I recognize that I'm not okay. But in Christ, I am. And what God desires for me is really better than the false glories that we think are satisfying. And so therefore, let us walk in this, dear Christ Church brother or sister. And one of the ways we can do so is not to pretend that we're all cleaned up. That we've got all our acts together because we know better. Right? And we're just walking together in a way of recognizing that we're in a posture of repentance constantly. In a few minutes, we're going to ask God to forgive us of our sins. We don't read that prayer. We pray it. Recognizing our need for him and therefore walk in the light of Christ. Let's pray.